Welcome to the Tax Break Breakdown with your hosts, Greg and Doug. Sit back and relax while they review current and upcoming child care tax credit programs employers can take advantage of. Now, on to the show. Good. Good to go. You just want laughter for the intro. That's yeah, what it I is. do want you laughter. Want, you want laughter like you want me sounding like a horse again as this comes in. Yes. So, welcome to episode two of the Tax Break Breakdown with your hosts, Greg and Doug. Um, if you don't know, Doug, we have over 400 subscribers to our newsletter on LinkedIn. That's like 399 more than I expected. Yeah, minus us two. So that's actually 398 more people. No, I never subscribed. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was just you. No, uh, over 400. That was as of uh, earlier today, which is exciting. That is exciting. Um, And everything that we do on the newsletter, there's a series that's going on now, which is looking at each state. So I think we've done everything up to California. So Delaware's next and and so forth. Um, We just did Indiana last week. Yeah. That was a good one. I I think we got a lot of good feedback from that one. Yeah, we got got some Irish. It was great. uh, Everybody's been been pretty positive about it. Uh, Deadline's tomorrow. Well, oh yeah, Indiana deadlines tomorrow. So if you didn't know, go check it out. By the time you, you listen to you... this, it will be passed. <laughs> no, I'm gonna try to get this out tonight. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the bigger the biggest thing is the exporting. You know. Um, yeah. But uh, downloads, I think, our podcast one week's like thirty. That, that's well, I mean, also twenty nine more I told, than I expected. Yeah, <laughs> I told uh, my wife I'm a content creator now. Um. We told we told everybody uh, <laughs> we told everybody um, Doug and I are very very similar and you're gonna find out over episodes. But the first I don't think we said a first fact. Uh, but no. the first one did we do a fact? I don't remember. No, we we didn't do a fact. But this is the weekly Grug fact, right? Yeah, Grug and Grug is our names combined, and that's what they call us. Where I don't I don't know if anybody would have put that together, man. I don't think so. Yeah, you're right. But what people, we're going to start out with like the most, the coolest one. Doug and I have the same birthday, same year, same month, same day. Uh, And we found this out at a company retreat in Palm Springs when we were wearing matching matching Hawaiian shirts. Yes, in the middle of the street. And um, we just gave each other a hug and said, like, how, what are the odds? It was a special that was a great moment. moment. It was a, it was a tender moment. moment. It was a special it, moment. It definitely was. Uh, so that's the grug fact of the day. We need to have like an intro, like grug fact. I'll try we'll, to. I'll try we'll, to put when one the in when there. the budget increases, we can we can get the sound effects yeah. in. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna try to do something new too. We're gonna have um, latest news, some discussion topics, and then we're gonna have our main topic. Uh, the main topic is around solving childcare in rural areas for manufacturers. Like this is probably one of the hardest populations to solve childcare for. Wouldn't you agree, Doug? Yeah, it's really difficult. It's complicated. There's a lot of complexity to it. And it also makes it a really interesting challenge to to go through. So excited to just kind of uh, give an overview, but dive into a lot of the details and the numbers around it because it's staggering when you go through it the first time. 
Yes. And we have, if you're an HR team or looking to do something like this, we have questions you should ask yourself. Uh, and then we have ways just to think about it. So if you're going to try to solve this, there are certain things you should try to solve first before others. And we'll talk about those. Uh, first, latest news. I'm not sure if you saw this one, but Bay Systems got chips funding from the chips. We got Act. chips funding? Chips funding got through. That's chips exciting. funding got through. Yes. Uh, for those that are not familiar with the CHIPS Act, this was an, uh, from the administration. I believe they put in $52 billion to boost development of semiconductors in the U.S. It was August 22, I think, when they started it. Um, yeah. Really, at the end of the day, when you pull it back, it's 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 a, it's supposed to be around national security. So everything with CHIPS uh, and national security, which is why they... S- basically have hinted why they gave the money to Bay Systems first. It's for a new plant in New Hampshire, and it's focused on like military applications, so chips in fighter planes and so forth. Mm-hmm. The reason why we're bringing it up is because part of the CHIPS Act included a provision, and what did it say, Doug? The exact term. What, did the, what was the exact sentence? <laughs> the exact sentence from the CHIPS Act? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull that up, but I bet you have it. No, I don't have it. But, but talk a little bit about um, why, how child care is related to the Chips Act. Like, how did child care get in there? What, what is it? Right. I mean, child care got in there because you need people to work in chip manufacturing facilities, and to get people to show up to work, they need to have child care. Um, you know, we look at you know the ability for an you know for an organization to retain. Uh, attract employees right consistently um this is a huge hurdle and especially when you look at some of the areas right where these manufacturing facilities you know tend to be a lot of times they're in child care deserts and so when we build infrastructure as a country uh, in a locality we want to make sure that the community is going to be stable and part of that a key part of that is child care and so it was a great inclusion on that part. And I think really, you know, will help the success of these facilities. And it was really geared towards creating new facilities or expanding existing facilities. Yep. Right. And to do that, more workers uh, coming into an area and they have kids that are going to need somewhere to go. Right. During the day. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that it w- it's a requirement. And there's different levels of it. So at first, like you could submit an application and just have the intent to do it. And then the second Mm -hmm. round was like, you need to have a plan. The other fascinating thing is that the childcare is not just for the chip manufacturer. It's for the construction workers too. Mm -hmm. So it's for anybody that's involved in building the plant. They have to provide some level of childcare. And we even spoke with one of the designers of the CHIPS Act. And it was not uh, it was not just supposed to be hey construction workers and employees like here's a website go find the childcare yourself like the intent is that it actually has an impact on the community mm-hmm. and that's why what we've seen is companies leveraging the home daycare networks because they're small businesses and so uh, for the employer though that's going to take these funding. You're going to need a system in place. You're going to need some type of program in place 
that can actually track community impact too, not just your employee impact. That's a big difference. And they called that out when we spoke to them. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, when we go through this, it, it, it's great news that, that the funding got pushed through. I know we've been kind of keeping an eye on it for a while now, like looking for this to happen and excited for this to happen, knowing that it's coming. Um, but as we go into it, I mean, it really is like part and parcel to what we're going to talk about tonight is what are the challenges, right, in manufacturing and childcare, and especially in rural areas, um, or it doesn't even necessarily need to be a rural area. It could just be an area where there's not a lot of childcare coverage or there's an expansion, like a need to expand the population. How do you get the community ready to support that? So uh, great bit of news, very timely as far as what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Second discussion topic here. I'm sure you are familiar with waitlist fees. This was an article uh, that was put out by uh, Moms First, who they, they had an opinion on it. Um, and it was a uh, from Fast Company, too. They put out a like a POV of their their thoughts and opinions on um Having waitlist fees, they even said one of the things was uh, in Canada, they actually mm. banned childcare programs that receive public money from collecting waitlist fees. What um, what are your thoughts on waitlist fees? It, it's a tough thing, right? We look at you know availability, is such a big issue, especially when we look at infant spaces. Um, and uh, I know, I actually, go back to. I remember my sister looking for, for daycare for, for my youngest nephew in the Seattle area. Um, and like, I think she was on like five different wait lists, right? And then I got them ranked and, uh, you know, I think three or four of them had fees. Um, and, and I see the, you know, I see the argument on both sides of it, right? Uh, I think there's an administrative cost that comes to managing a wait list. Um, you know, and it's where does that cost get shifted, right? Is that is that the cost of doing business for a facility, um, or does that shift to the parent? Um, and it also can deter, right? If you have a waitlist fee, it can deter people from being on too many waitlists. My general take on it is like, you know, the the argument for them, right? Like dissuading people from being on a bunch of waitlists. Um, you know, typically from what I've seen, the, those fees aren't super high, right? And so it becomes a question months, of, I think. yeah, Sometimes, right? Maybe I mean, 50, 10 to 50. I mean, I, I've seen them be a couple hundred to hold a space. Um, but at the same time, right, when we talk about impacting childcare, right, and, and especially like the populations we like to talk about, right, and we really like to focus on frontline workers, right, those that, that, don't have a ton of disposable income, right? It, it actually becomes, um, it's a regressive thing because somebody who is making more money, right, has more stability, can afford to be on a bunch of wait lists, right? Like that dollar is not the same, um, you know, to different, two different segments of the population earning differently. So to me, it's like, to me, I think it's net negative. I understand where it comes from. I understand it from the, the provider side. Um, but I wish there's a way, you know, if it's administrative cost, like, you know, th there's technology out there that can help with those things. Um, like it doesn't have to be a huge administrative burden. Um, and yeah, I just, I'm always going to come back to like, 
is is it actually helping or hurting right like those that need it the most right and and to me when you do that it's going to end up regressive so not a fan myself but i do i do understand why it exists yeah um the uh the indiana act remember last week mm-hmm. some of the funding could actually go towards paying for waitlist fees that was interesting. Remember, part of it, it can go to go to priority witness fees. You could you yeah, can get to the front of better. the line, which I, better. Yeah. Or not. I mean, it, like I think there's. Listen, you know, and we're going to go through this in depth, but the way to address this, like, uh, to me, does it help? Can it help an organization to have something like that? Yes, but when we look at solving the overall problem. Right. We're really just, you know, taking away from somebody else and giving that space here. Right. So yep. at some point, right, you know, supply affordability are always going to be the key drivers to this. And without attacking those, we're really just kind of kicking the can to my mind. Yep. Um, which kind of leads into the next news for those that haven't oh, yeah. heard, but there are new eligibility requirements for HSA, FSA, HRA. Um, and there's a new company out that I thought was pretty fascinating. Uh, the company is called uh, TrueMed. Not mm-hmm. sponsored. Uh, not sponsored in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. Um, We're good with the non-sponsorships. That's our thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the... What's fascinating about them and why I wanted to bring it up here, because it goes along with our ethos of using what's already out there. And if it's hard to get, let us figure it out for you. Mm-hmm. FSAs, HSAs are they're a little complicated. They're clunky to use. I think some mm-hmm. are better than others. But what this company did was uh, they actually looked at it from the provider side. So there's only a set amount of things that you can spend things on. You yep. you. You could, in theory, spend it on gym memberships, certain types of diets and foods. The problem with that is that you basically needed a doctor's note, and then you have to submit it to the um, you got to submit it to the, the HSA FSA provider, and they're going to claim, you know, deny it or accept it. This company actually did like the reverse, so they went to all these providers. So Daily Harvest was one of them, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could actually qualify for their stuff um, and how it were. I've, I've kind of started to test it out. I'm just fascinated with it because it's such a, yeah. it's so unique because there's so much money. I think they, they claimed like there's like $150 billion that go into HSA FSA accounts and, and a lot of, not a lot of that, but there's a portion that's just yeah. sits there. And so if you could use it on other things um, and I, I have an FSA and I put the full amount, I put like 3000 a year. And it goes towards contact lenses. It goes towards glasses. It goes towards premium. Now, it can't go towards premiums, but it can go Not towards um, really yeah. unique things. It can, you, could, you could get sunscreen. Um, like there's all these little things. You can get Dr. Scholl's. You can get like all of these things that are related. Um, and I think that's fascinating. But for this one, they basically partnered with like all these gyms and all these like wellness companies. And so you would apply basically and tell them, you know, any conditions you have and they'll let you know, like you can qualify and then they'll actually do um, a doctor's note for you. And then you submit that administrative burden. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's so genius. Um, I mean, these, maybe maybe a new FSA, business idea. I don't know. I, I mean, listen, FSAs, HSAs, they're great things. The administrative burden, I, like I get, like the regulations around them, it's hard. They're tough to use. I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a decap right dependent care FSA claim that I've been going back and forth between my provider and the the administrator for a month and a half. Um, finally got what I needed and submitted it. Um, and I used the wrong date. Now we're going through the whole cycle again uh, because I used the date it was printed, right? Or, mm-hmm. or what it was run for, not the first billing. It just it's absurd. Little we'll get there, but it doesn't need to be that way, you know. It doesn't, and I see this is just one step. So there's like the front end of it, and then there's this back end, and there's going to be people that are going to make links in between. But it's it's. I mean, one of the biggest advantages for companies is money contributed there is tax free, so you're saving on the FICA tax, and on the employee, it's pre tax. So both sides you're saving tax, which. For me, putting $3,000 into an FSA, that's going to save me, I think, about $600 in taxes. Because you're maybe not, maybe nine, six to 900 bucks in taxes. But again, a lot of people don't know that that exists. A lot of people can't wait until filing to see that money saved. I mean, that's, so, that's um, the other thing. When we, we start talking about like the populations, right? Is like, can you actually afford to go out of pocket for something and then get reimbursed? Right. Yes. And like, how does that model work? And there's ways where that model can work and work fine. And there's ways where it's a challenge. And the longer yeah. that distance is, right, um, between submitting a claim and getting money in your account, the harder it is, the lower the utilization is going to be with those things. Yep. And um, I remember actually talking with an FSA company, one of the largest. And I'd ask them a question like, is there any legal reason why companies just don't pre-fund like a dependent care or an FSA account like they do an HSA? And the answer is no. You could, you as an employer could do it and almost all FSA companies allow it. It's a click of a button. That just means you have to pre-fund it compared yep. to um, having, you know, the the employee pre-fund it and have to double dip. So you could actually make this a lot easier uh, as an employer. Yeah. Can be done. Not the norm. One of those things that, you know, again, when you're looking for easy ways to move the needle on this, it's there. That's an easy way. Very yeah. easy way. And now for the main segment, do we have intro music? music? Do we have you, you music? Can put, you can put the- <laughs> <laughs> I wish. There is a thing you could do that. It's like a little board and you could press it and they can like clap in like in- intro music. But maybe we'll add some music right now. We have to get some actual sponsors first for that. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's talk about this episode, which is episode two, talking about solving childcare for manufacturers in rural areas. Take it away, mm-hmm. Doug. Well, um, before we dive into the details and the stats with it, why is this so hard in rural areas, Greg? Why is this so hard in rural areas? Think about yeah. it. Yeah. Why? Why and why is childcare so hard in rural areas? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, population's lower. Population's lower. Yeah. Infrastructure is a lot lower in these areas. Yeah. Um, 
there's businesses out in those areas, specifically manufacturing, all types of manufacturing, protein, yeah, manufacturing, 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 agricultural, focus on manufacturing today. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, density is an issue, right? It's spread out, right? You know, you live in San Diego. I live in Kansas, right? It may take you uh, an, an hour to travel the same distance. Uh, it takes me to travel 15 minutes, but I'm covering about 10 times the ground. Right. Right. Uh, right. So, so population density is a factor. Population is absolutely a factor. Um, you know, I've worked uh, being in the HCM space now doing what we do today, uh, you know, working with organizations in these areas like population is going down. Right. You know, I yep. think the, the, the last assessment I did um, in uh, it was in like rural Nebraska was like population is dropping right but in the state it's going up right so this disparity is continuing to grow but it's still the core of our manufacturing base and our agriculture it's somewhat important to us as a as a country and an economy um and how do you get more population well one thing one stat that i read uh one fourth to one half of the population live in a rural area Mm mm-hmm and we just talked about rural areas. They are starting to and trying to, and actually always have been trying to recruit families and, and more and more younger families. Mm-hmm. But one of the big gaps that they've identified is the supply of childcare, especially in the rural areas. And because of that, it affects economic house, like economic households, businesses, and also tax revenues. Well, and when those drop, right, it affects the entire community. And I, I, I go back, uh, I remember you know, it was 10 years ago, right? And um, customer worked with when I was at Single Point in the HCM space. Uh, shout out to Trent Doherty. Um, and he, uh, we, you know, the challenge, right? They were, they were having trouble recruiting people. They're having to recruit people from like 20, 30 miles away, right, to come in to work at the facility. Because things had gotten to a point where there wasn't like the community, the the safety in the area, it wasn't appealing to younger families. And they were relying on right, the thing I heard time and time again when I talk to these kind of customers is, right, like our, our, our workforce has been here for a long time. They're aging out. Right. People are retiring. Um, like what like what do we do? How do we attract, you know, younger workers? And then, right, a lot of it was. um you know, there's a lot of a lot of things going on around like same day pay. Like some of these things were starting to spring up to to try to attract people and, and make it more attractive. You can raise wages, but ultimately, like that population now is is getting older, right? Millennials and um, and, and now Gen Z coming through. Like they're going to start having kids, right? And they want to have a family and they want to be somewhere. And that that rural family kind of atmosphere, like some of these areas, it's a struggle at the moment, but it can turn around. Right. And I think the investment that we're seeing now is core to that. Mm-hmm. And investments, including the Indiana one last week, there's like yep. three others we're going to touch on today. Um, I think I, I touched on this last time. Like there, there are a lot of dollars going to solve this. A lot of people yep. just don't see it yet. And so just wait, it's coming. Um <laughs> I see it when well, we see it left and right, and that's exciting. Well, yeah, let, let's get into some of the numbers, right, with the challenges, right? So in towns with residents, right, with 500 residents or fewer, 
right? Right. Less than 500 residents. Only 51% uh, of those residents have access to a child care center, right? Yeah. 34% have access to a family child care home, right? So, so just the supply is not there, right? Okay. Let's bump the population up just a bit, right? 2,500 residents are below 2,500 to 500 residents, right? Only 70% have access to a child care center, 40% to a family child care home, right? Or family child care center. That's not going to do it at the end of the day. Like supply, supply has to be there. Yeah. And um, shout out here to the bipartisan policy center. They've done a tremendous job at, at sharing the research. Uh, I would mm-hmm. definitely go to their site. It's not only just on childcare. They do everything around hunger. They do everything around homelessness. I mean, it, it is, I think, a very interesting um, take on it. But this is from research that you know they have done. Uh, mm-hmm. One other fascinating uh, stat is that parents report, especially in rural areas, that they can pay less than two hundred dollars a week for full time mm-hmm. childcare. That's eight hundred dollars a month. And my gut is that this is also like at the top of their budget. You know, they may have been asked a question like, "What's the max?" Like. $800 and you're making $36,000 a year in a rural area. Um, significant. Well, and that, that goes to one of the stats, right? That the, another one that the stats that they put out, right? 86% of rural parents, right? Say that one of their partners stays home to watch the kids because of that cost gap, right? Yep. Supply affordability, right? Right. Can we address those two? Right. When we get to availability, like all these things, but can we, can we address those two things first? The, the other thing that I think is like, um, makes it that much harder, right? When you look at the nature of the work in these areas, right? You know, focus on manufacturing, but agriculture as well, right? Is a lot of times we're needing care during non-traditional hours. Uh, so yeah. when you look at, you know, you, you, you normal brick and mortar daycare center, it'd be, you know, open maybe for early care by seven if you're lucky. Um, and, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to close the doors at six. And what do you do in those off times, right? What if it's transportation? Um, you know, is this even close to where the support network is again, density, things are spread out. People may be traveling from, from towns away and there's a lot that needs to go in to be able to solve for it. Yep. And, um, you know, one option that families, um, may not have choices on, they just allow their kids to stay at home. And if they're on a farm, the kids are on a, on a farm. Um, and one of the stats that they uh, showed was 97% of farm families are concerned that their children could get, could get hurt on the farm. I know we have uh, a couple team members we work with that actually grew up on farms and they're like, yeah. yes, it is not a place for kids. It's about, it's um, that one was crazy, but the, the stat out here that really like threw me was 33 children are seriously injured every day in agriculture related incidents. I, you, like, I, big country, I get like, yes, that seems like a lot. It seems like too much. I feel like that should be too much. I think so. So we, um, I mean, addressing the core root of, of, of safe quality childcare, I think can help with that. Yeah, absolutely. This, I think, um, another when we look at again, all all of this leads up to like impact, and they did an analysis to to show economic impact. So mm-hmm. they projected rural the rural projected economic loss 
is $33 to $50 billion annually. Nationwide projected loss is $142 to $217 billion because of these gaps. That is huge, and it affects, again, a lot of rural manufacturers, a lot of rural families, a lot of rural communities. Um, and so I think, um, I think summing it up, if we were to think of, there's a couple different solutions, but underlying all of this is that supply has to be addressed. No yeah. question about it. And supply of not only all types of care. So whether that means new construction, renovation, maintenance, home daycares, nannies, babysitters, friends, family, all types of supply have to be addressed. Um, and there's a lot, including that Indiana, that are looking to address this. Yeah. But can employers wait for that? And then how do employers take advantage of that? If not directly or indirectly, they're going to be competing against the community at large as well. Um, supply I, I has to be addressed. It needs to be addressed. I think when we look at it through an organizational lens, right? We can be reactive, right? You wait till you hear about it from us, right? Or somewhere else, right? And go shoot. Or we can be proactive and start putting things in place, right? To, to begin addressing it, right? Doing something uh, is better than doing nothing in this case. There's, there's, you know, there's things where you want to wait for the perfect solution. In this case, right? It actually pushes the can further down the road, right? It makes it harder to gain traction, makes it harder to retain employees, makes it harder to build the community. And I think that's like, when we look at this, yes, there are states that they're putting more into it. You can access funds. It can help build supply, you know, you know, and again, Indiana was a great one to go through on the first podcast, but there are things that can be done today that don't have to be overwhelmingly expensive for an organization, but the, the return is massive, uh, yeah. consistently. Yeah. And so what's the solution, Doug? What is the supply. holy grail here? <laughs> the, that's the crazy right? We look at this, right? Like day in, day out, right? We look at this in different areas, right? And, and how do we solve it, right? With the, with the piece we have available. It's never the same, right? It's never the same for a community, right? And you have to, you have to ask yourself as an organization, as a community, right? The questions of like, who are we trying to solve for, right? And why do we need to solve it? What's the impact of solving it, right? And who yeah. are the stakeholders involved? And you, ha you have to keep that lens the entire time, right? Because, you know, when you have these conversations, you start talking about the investment into it, right? And, you know, I know like one of, one of the solutions we see organizations go through uh, in, in rural areas is like, okay, well, we're just going to build a childcare facility. We're going to build one on site, right? And it's awesome. It's great. Right. But then, right. Supply. Then you have to think of affordability. Right. So if you lose that lens of who you're building it for, right. This worker that's making like on average, what, $36,000 a year. Right. Hey, here's a childcare space to, to keep it open, keep the doors open. It's going to be $1,200 a month. Yep. Well, that may not work. We've seen it not work. Right. Uh, and so ultimately, I think the solution's holistic. Right. We have to look at all types of supply. Right. But when you're looking at a specific area, right, it's what's there, but also what are people going to use? What can they afford to use? Um, how long does it take to stand up? Uh, and, and how long do you want to wait before you're starting to see an impact from those things? 
and uh, liability. We see a lot of yeah, companies there's li- that there's explore um, from the employer perspective. They explore building an on-site, and whether they have like a third party running it, generally is some shared liability, and a lot of a lot of C levels can't stomach that uh, liability from it. But I I think you're right that if you really want to solve this, and I think our opinion and stances is that it's not just on the employer though. Um, it's a shared responsibility, right? So parents, providers, the employers, the businesses, the governments, getting them to all work together would be the holy grail. And there's a lot of organizations, you know, we had we had this concept three years ago. And we've seen yeah. it started to play out. Not only, um, you know, not only the stuff that we do in our day to day, but we see other governments. So Michigan doing the tri-share. That's been yep. successful, been re- been renewed, more money funding into it. One of the things, you know, we when we started to think about how to solve this and said parents, providers, employers, and government, one piece that the um, bipartisan policy talk that I was at included philanthropy as part of that. So we didn't really have that as part of our model. And I think that's an interesting angle because it can. Um, it, it, it can, can make support. a difference. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I think those core four, right? Like, I mean, that's where it has to happen. Um, but that doesn't show up overnight, right? Like, it, it, it has to, like, somebody has to move first, right? And yeah. in some of these states, right, we see, we see the governments, right? Indiana, you know, Michigan, and, you know, others, right? They move first. They say, here's this program. We're going to make it broad, right? We're going to support this because we need it in our communities. Right. We've seen it in others, you know, where the organization goes, this is like, we need to do this and we can do this, not just for employees, but for our community, because there's a net benefit. There's a long-term net benefit to investing, yeah. right, in childcare for employees, for the community, as the community improves, right? More people want to be there. There's a larger labor pool to pull from, right? At the end of the day, from an organizational standpoint, it comes down to labor. We look at manufacturing, you're not manufacturing anything if you don't have somebody there to do it. Um, yep. No matter how much automation we put in, somebody's got to be there still today. Maybe we'll get yep. past that at some point, but we're not there at the moment. Nope. Um, I've even seen employers, though, that say, I want to solve this. And if the government helped out a little bit, I would 100% do it. Um, that is a very good sign, but it just goes to show that if you want to create a sustainable model, it's going to be very, very hard for the employer to cover everything. And, you know, I've seen a case study where a large uh, manufacturer had a uh, new plant, about 1500 employees, um, Mm -hmm. put in $5 million for an onsite center. They've seen such great uh, responses to it. However, they've also admitted how are you going to scale that across every single plant that you have? I have some it's ideas. Of, it's a lot of childcare centers. Yeah, I know you have some yeah, ideas. Yeah, I got some ideas. I mean, at the end of the day, leveraging the licensed home daycare network is a solid option. Um, it is. A lot of people then say, well, quality. You know, I don't want just somebody to be a babysitter. That's such an old school way of thinking, I think. There is, unfortunately, a stigma around home daycares. But when you look at licensed home daycares, you look at um, the ones that have 
providers that have MBAs. I mean, there is a home daycare. <clears throat> the gentleman in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, his daycare is called, I think, uh, it's called Daddy's Home or Daddy's Place, and he has a Russian language program that he teaches kids in the predominant Russian area of New York, the Russian language program. I mean, that's like needs based at its finest. And that's what you can get with a lot of licensed home daycares. They're not just babysitters. So, so two things from that, that I think are really interesting. One, I think some of the stigma comes and I'll admit like that was, that was something that, that I was concerned about. We were looking for daycare for, um, for my youngest, right. And we were looking at, you know, the centers were full. Um, and we started looking at home daycares and we were kind of like, ah, I don't know. Right. And as you get into it, right. And it was around the time we started talking. Right. And it was like, it, once you actually go, you meet these people that a lot, a lot of them are like educators, like they've worked in yep. facilities, right. Or they've been teachers, right. They're doing it because they love it and they want to provide for the community. There is curriculum, right. Um, you know, and, and so I was really impressed. Like ultimately, like we ended up going with a center because of like location and, and where it was and the availability, like the, the hours of it. But we've looked multiple times. We've always included home daycares in our search since then, yeah. right? As, as we look for, for the right place. And so, but most people, a lot of people don't experience that, right? Yeah. But the second thing I think from, from the one in New York that's interesting is it's in the community, right? It's in the, right, this area where there's a high like um, uh, density of, of, of people that speak Russian, and it's an incredible value to have in the community. Now, could you have a full daycare center dedicated to that? I don't know, maybe, but it's not there. Uh, yeah. At least I don't think. Um, but you can have that. And I think, you know, we've encountered situations, right? And, you know, where there's there's segments of populations, right? It could be, um, really could be anything, right? Especially when you get into rural America, it could be refugee groups, right? It could be anything. And it's an opportunity to have that support within the community. It's an opportunity to have a small business, right? Within that community that funds the community. Um, and so we talk about restructuring some of these areas, growing the population, right? Like building strong community health. It could be a huge asset. Yeah. When you talk about a home daycare too, let's talk about one that's already licensed. Um, it's already there. You don't need a brand yeah. new building. So think about environmental impact. And yeah. then also, if you want to start a new home daycare, you're not looking at how long it takes to build an on-site center, generally about a year. Mm-hmm. You're talking single-digit millions. Home daycares, the startup cost is significantly cheaper. The time to start is significantly less. Um, and then when you think of of being able to expand or contract your supply, like your your capacity... A center is pretty fixed. If you want to add more kids, well, you need more bathrooms. You need more public parking spaces. On a home daycare, you would just create a new home daycare or even expand it. You see some that are small licensed. They they expand. They can go to large. You know, like use what's already there. Um, That is a big, a big thing. When, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, like the ability to use existing infrastructure to build childcare supply is a cheat code in these areas, right? Like there's houses, right? Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, the 
you know, we talk about like the, the quality of the safety of it. Like the licensing process is the same. Yep. They have to go through the same checks and balances that a daycare center does, you know, with a home daycare. But I didn't know those things, right, until I got into the space. Yeah. Um, and, and so learning about it, like it is, you know, as you scale, and that could even be somebody that eventually opens a daycare center of their own, right? It can grow, right, with it. But yeah, time to value. How can we address this now or in a shorter term, right? It, it, it's a good option. Um, so for employers that are thinking about this, we have some recommendations. Um, the first thing I think it's important for teams to think about is to what extent should we even enter this space? Um, mm -hmm. some want to build an onsite and that is a lot more and some others want networks to help and some want to do subsidies and some want to do like to what extent do they really want to help? And then that leads into, I think, as a company, does the company believe they have a responsibility or do they have a role that they really do want to play? Like, those are some pretty foundational questions that yeah. I think when I've seen companies take that approach, that's coming up with the solution makes more sense because you've already aligned on, yes, we want to be in this space. And yes, we believe that we have a responsibility, but mm -hmm. then we need help with the solution. But we've already agreed and we've already said we are going to do this. Now let's find a partner or let's do it ourselves. Yep. And that then leads into, you touched on this, but then we would recommend asking a couple questions to yourself. So um, what's the root problem you're looking to solve? You had mentioned in manufacturing, in rural areas, it's labor. Yep. In other places, other organizations, it could be diversity. In other areas, it could be uh, retention against the labor, mm -hmm. recruitment, yep. absenteeism. Um, we've seen industries where organizations place a strong emphasis on uh, career progression. Mm-hmm. There's a large tire company that I went to, and they have a big sign in their they have a big sign in their uh, store that says, "100% of our managers come from within." Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, when you when you tie that with career progression, going from an hourly employee to a management, you're taking on more responsibility. And so, career progression, obviously, a barrier could be childcare. So, what is the root problem you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. Anything you wanted to add to that first question? No, I think you're, you know, especially when we look at manufacturing rural areas, like you're not just supporting somebody for, for a year, right? Typically you're wanting people that are going to stay and grow that community. You're supporting them through their entire life cycle, right? And one of the challenges and where we've seen population reduce is, um, you know, a lot of younger people left the rural areas, right? Like how do you bring yeah. them back, right? There's... Um, there's an opportunity, I think, to, to build something interesting and revitalize a lot of these areas and really stabilize and grow the populations and some of these things that, that can be, can be thriving now. Um, and so yeah. like that, that's at its core is you have to support the entire life cycle, right. For that family, not just, right. Can we get them in the door? Because I think what's, what's the average turnover, right. Manufacturing was around 40%, I think. Um, yeah, like, that's a lot, 
right? That's a lot to replace. Like if you can move that, if you cut that number in half, it's still high, right? But it becomes more manageable, right? And this is a way yeah. you can do it, right? We've seen it with programs. Um, and that then leads into another question you should ask. What would you consider success? We've seen, um, and after talking with hundreds of companies, <laughs> that uh, their answer really is, if you could beat the numbers today, I will consider a success. So if turnover is 45%, beat that amongst the cohort. And this is a solid approach. And that's like, I think that's table stakes. Uh, we've seen companies, high single digit, mid double digit reduction. I, that I, is... Um, I remember the first time, or first time we were able to calculate it like in detail. We went like, we think something's wrong. Um, yeah. Like this, like is such a big difference. We had to go back and like audit each piece of it. It was real, and then we took it right. And we went, and we repeated it, we repeated it, repeated it, and it's always right a factor of like five x plus, like up to numbers. Sometimes where we're like, okay, let's do that again, and they yeah. hold. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, next question. So after we identify the root of what we're trying to solve and after we have some level of what we're going to think success looks like, who are we trying to keep front and center? The way I go about this, uh, and I do whiteboarding sessions, but I'll pull up a whiteboard and I'll say, um, how do how do we segment our employees? What are the different cohorts of employees that are pretty similar? So manufacturing you'll have um, frontline workers, hourly production workers. Yep. Um, then the next level is usually management or, uh, yeah, management. And then the level after that is usually corporate or sometimes they call it above the plant. Mm -hmm. um, each of those is different. Each of them have different income levels. Each of them have different needs. Each of them have different schedules. Each of them have different um, they're all just a little bit different, but they all have, when you look at each one of them, they all have similar, um, similar challenges. Mm -hmm. And so if you are looking for a solution to solve everybody's care problem, I, I mean, we would recommend against that on day one, <laughs> but generally everybody we've, I mean, it's most of the people we spoke with, unless you're in the law or high tech, you know, they're focused on the top 10%. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. have been. Yeah, we come from a stance of, well, what about your bottom 90%? And so it's really important to keep front and center. Who are we trying to help? What is their income? What they can, what can they afford? And I'll give an example that I always give is, okay, if, if we're keeping front and center frontline workers $36,000 a year, we agree that we want our employees to use this benefit. Mm -hmm. We want to use the childcare that we offer to them. Well, what you wouldn't want to do is give them access to nannies and babysitters. It is just logically flawed. It is not going to happen. They do not have the funds to pay for a nanny and babysitter. So now working backwards, you can start checking off the types of care that you're going to be able to offer. Mm. Like you have to work backwards and keep them front and center. Yeah. I mean, I think the simple way to go about this, right, um, is when we focus specifically on manufacturing, right, is the majority of your workers are on the line, right? Um, it'd be really weird if it was just a bunch of people in the office and like one dude on the line making everything. Um, and so 
right? And, and they typically are going to be your lowest paid workers, right? That's your population. If you can solve for that population, everybody else will benefit, right? Yep. And so that is, right, like, what is that population and what do they make, right? Because you have to understand, yep. like, it needs to be affordable, right? Like, it exists. Great. Now can it be affordable? Yep. Last question that you should ask yourself, and then we're going to go through the five things that you need to consider when trying to solve this, and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, is what we're going to implement for childcare, is it going to benefit just us as a company? Is it going to benefit the employee and us? Is it going to benefit us, them, and the community? There's different levels here you have to think about. And once you can answer all of those questions, then it's a matter of finding a solution for yourself. Mm -hmm. And whether that's partnering with somebody, whether that's doing it yourself, um, there's, there's definitely different ways. Now, shifting into the five areas that, and this is an order that you're going to have to solve. So keep in mind, let's keep front and center our hourly workers. Yeah. First thing that you have to solve is affordability. If you cannot implement a benefit that a 36000 earning employee per year could afford, you're going to have low utilization. So affordability is key. We talked about some ideas here. Mm -hmm. Subsidies from employers, grants from the government. Um, those are really the two big ways. Philanthropy is another way for affordability. Yeah. And we also talked about the FSA DCAP account. Like that actually does reduce the cost of care. So in yep. DCAP account, you could save 30% on your taxes. Yep. Um, What's the next one they should think about? Next one's going to be proximity. On average, people don't want to drive more than 15 miles, right, out of their way, right, for childcare. Um, now, this is always like a really interesting one, um, especially when we go through like assessments, right, is – um, that could be proximity to the site, right? When we talk about like an on-site center, right? Like it tends to be where they go, well, everybody's coming here, right? So we might as well put the supply here. And sometimes that's the right answer, right? And sometimes it's not. When it's not is, right, when your population is very distributed, right? Because what we found is people tend to prefer care near their home, right? Because that's where their support network is. So driving 30 miles one way, right? I'd say a manufacturing worker like has to, you know, is working a second shift. They're not off till, you know, seven, eight in the evening, right? Is somebody else coming and picking them up if they live 30 miles away? So you have to look at your population and say proximity, but to where, right? Where is the greatest impact? Uh, near site, on site, I think is always some part of the solution. Um, but we've also seen areas where there, there's pockets of employees where that would be a really big struggle for them and a more distributed model, right? Or a broader program may actually pay bigger dividends for the organization and the communities at large. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking also if you're traveling 30 minutes to an hour and you're working a first shift, you're having to take the kiddo in your car with you for an hour. Yep. It's uh, a, it's to a work and then, they're hanging out there and mm -hmm. then taking them home, right? What if you work second shift, third shift? That's a lot on them. And yeah, I, I, we've seen it time and time again. A lot of employees, uh, a lot of people in general like to have care close to where they live. The next mm -hmm. is, um, all right, 
you have a thirty-six thousand uh, dollar a year employee, so got to make it affordable. It's got to be close. It's got to be in in distance to to where they'd like. Yep. The next is, uh, can it be open during the times that a manufacturing plant work that opens? Second shift, third shift. Yep. Um, usually, on-site centers are not supporting your second, third shift. Uh, there are some that I've heard that are twenty-four-seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of home daycares actually can and do okay. support 24-7 care. Another example of who are we trying to help matching it with the types of care that exist out there. So availability, I can afford it. Is it close now? Is it even open? And, and this is this is where I, I know we haven't, you know, we went back and we said like nannies and sitters aren't an option, right? But when we look at like friends, family, neighbor network and some of the like company stipend programs, right? Childcare stipend programs we've looked at, right? Being broadened to expand, right? And some of that could actually be affordable in home care, right? Because, you know, like there's a lot of ways to address it. Um, And and again, leveraging leveraging the community aspect too is an option for some of those things. Um, And so like, again, we we keep that lens as we go through and say, okay, is this, does this make sense, right? Does it cover right? As much as we can, right? And are we using all of the available options? Next. Accessibility. Is it accessible? Yep. Do they even have open spaces? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's, this is hard, right? It's got to, and, and it's got to be affordable. It's got to be where they actually need it. It's got to be open. It's got to match the times. And so mm-hmm. like, do they even have open spots? That's the next one. After that, the last is quality. Yeah. So you wouldn't fix quality first because if someone can't afford it, they're not going to use it. And so generally that's been the stance is um, out of the five, quality is important, but it is the last one that you would solve for. Yeah, you have to solve for it, right? It's not to minimize the impact of it, right? Like everybody wants their, like, you know, you know, there'd be like high levels of quality and they go, this is, but if you can't hit the other ones, it doesn't matter that there's quality, right? Like, you can't get there. You can't use it. You can't pay for it. There is not a space for you. It's not open during the hours. What does it matter what the quality is at that point? It still has to be solved, right? I think that's, yep. that's the key thing of this is like we can't minimize it and take it away and say quality doesn't matter, right? As a parent, neither of us parents, we wouldn't right say that. But when you're building a solution, right, you need to make sure that you're willing to address the other four, or yeah. it's not going to matter that you address quality. Yep. And if you actually break these into two categories, affordability is around cost, proximity, availability, accessibility, and quality is about supply. Yep. Like those are the two things. And um, I think one other thing to think about, um, w- what role does technology play in this? Um, you know, I've talked to a few uh, folks that have indicated that you know technology is not actually needed for this, but I would actually argue the reverse. Technology is a way to scale this. So if we agree that it's a shared responsibility, mm-hmm. where parents and family, uh, parents, you know, families, providers, government, philanthropy, businesses all need to work together. Well, what's going to tie them together? At a, at a basic level, a telephone, email. <laughs> Like carrier you need pigeon. to be able to communicate a carrier pigeon. You need to be able to connect. Now just layer on like where we're at, we, you know, where we're at with technology and marketplaces. Um, if the fundamental understanding here is that everybody should pitch together, 
then a centralized technology solution, I think, actually can provide the scale that you need. Now, you have to match that with somebody that can also address the supply issue. And so if you have a provider out there that has this ecosystem, but also has the ability to address like what the gaps are, whether it's a proximity, availability, accessibility, the supply, right. you have the holy grail. I mean, um, I don't see a way, even if you built an onsite, you still have technology that connects the families to the onsite registration system, payment system, right? So if you well, want to yeah. scale just that model, technology is involved. And But like that's a huge piece of it, right? We talk about, right, the, the total solution, getting all these parties involved. But we just talk about utilizing, right, leveraging the totality of childcare options that are available, right? You need, you want to have line of sight to that. You want to be able to integrate those things together because yeah. the way you manage, right, expand this program, these programs efficiently, right, to maximize their impact is by looking at data, Right, which is really hard to get in this space. Right, we go through it all the time. I mean, uh, it's yeah. why it's like so exciting. Like the studies out there, and, and you know, we can work with, with the numbers that are already there. We're not going and hunting them down on our own. And it's when you can look at what are people actually using, what do they want to use, what can they afford to use. Right, um, you know, again, you don't always know what people's needs are. Right, you can survey. Right, you can survey. Right, we do internal surveys, and you get answers. But do those answers always match the behavior? They do not. No. They're one right. time when somebody, you know, when you do a survey, you're asking somebody about child care. They could have, they could be, you know, on maternity leave and they don't have child care for another six months. Mm -hmm. You're going to miss out on that if you do a one time a year survey. Yeah. Um, but I, I do believe that technology is a way to build a sustainable model. Um, there are models that are not sustainable. But if you want to be able to scale it, you have to have a way that everybody's going to talk together. I mean, even if you're looking to scale like a nanny network, how are you going to background check everybody in person? Like you yeah. got to be able to just do these basic like technology things. Um, with that said, Dougie Fresh. Yes, sir. I'm going to end with um, uh, a couple tidbits for everybody. There are three other grant programs. If you're interested in checking them out, there's Colorado Employer-Based Child Care Facility Grant. It's a grant program. It's to provide a financial assistance to employers for the development or expansion of on-site child care facilities, up to $250,000 per facility. If you have more than 50 employees in California, look that one up. Colorado. Uh, number California. two. What's that? You said California. It's Colorado. Did I say? You it's Colorado, it. yeah. Colorado, I'm yeah. I'm just, I'm, I, th I got you back. That's it. Okay, thank you. Iowa Child Care Challenge Fund. Uh, it's this is an initiative. It's a grant program. Uh, affordable, high quality child care throughout Iowa. Public, private entities, including child care provider schools, community are eligible. Lastly, the Illinois Early Childhood Construction Grant (ECCG) program. Grant program. Financial assistance for the construction and renovation expansion of child care facilities in Illinois, up to two million. Child care centers, licensed homes. So remember, mm -hmm. when you hear facility, that doesn't just mean a center. A home, licensed home, does count yep. in public schools. Uh, that'll be it for our episode two. So why don't we cue the music? We have an outro. It's going right now. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> 
Have a good uh, have a good day. Bye. <laughs>